and welcome to Hadfield Education's Good to Great webinar series where I interview the head teachers and senior leaders within the UK education sector and today I've been joined by Andrew Hampton who is the head at Thorpehall School in Southend. Um, good afternoon Andrew, how are you Hi, doing today? I'm very well Lee, thank you very much indeed, yes great to be here. Excellent, excellent. So Andrew, um, I always like to start off by just finding out um, about you um, and how you got into education. Yeah. Um, so so what, what took you into, into teaching? I, when I was about 11 years old, I wanted to be a teacher, which makes me very sad. And I think probably at the age of 12, I probably wanted to be a head teacher, which makes me even sadder. Um, but uh, I went to university. I kind of fell into show business at that point. And there was one moment uh, just as I graduated that I actually did apply to teaching, teacher training college to become an English teacher. Was offered a place, but actually the lure of the of the grease makeup and the stage was too great, and I went on to you know to do um, acting, uh, sort of some, you know, some TV things, and did lots of stage work. And at the end of that, I thought, well, actually, my parents spent a lot of money on my education. I was educated privately, and there I was um, in, in, on a stage in Liverpool, you know, basically being directed not not to uh, bump into the furniture, speak louder, and get off, and that was it. And I thought, this is no job actually for an intelligent and well-educated person. So. I kind of thought, went back home and thought, and I will uh, try and get into education at this point. I did actually have a career, a little bit of a career as a composer then, but started to teach clarinet and saxophone. That was my first job in the school. Um, so I taught at the King Alfred School in North London for um, one day a week teaching saxophone. Now, I did that for five years, became head of music, um, and uh, then decided at that point, that's when I wanted to kind of you know, reignite my uh, ambition to become a, a leader of education. And so I qualified through doing um, a master's degree in education leadership and management through OU and various other qualifications, including um, MPQH, and got my first headship when I was 45. I ran a, a small school in Nottingham for four years, and then I came down to Southend. So I jumped over deputy headship, and uh, yes, I've been a head uh, 16 years this Christmas. So when you were initially um, teaching as a, just a, a normal music teacher and, and what yes. have you. Um, wh what were your biggest insights? What were mm. um, the, the learns and experience that really sort of um, uh, probably, um, well, they, they structured and molded you into the teacher that you were? I was a music teacher. Um, and I think that's a very particular subject. And sort of, you know, teach, you've got effectively kind of two types of, of, of music teaching to be done. First of all, in key stage three, which is music for all. Uh, so you have to kind of, tailor what you're doing to make sure that everybody, whether they're a musician or not, can do it. And then when you get, take it to GCSE and A-level, then you're, you're dealing with musicians. Um, I think for me, it was always, you know, good lesson planning was important and, and a good structure whereby there would be an exposition as a, for a lesson and then um, making sure that the lesson was really active and had um, things that the children could participate in and demonstrate that they'd done at the end of the lesson. So the, the plenary at the end was very, very real and they would take away the things that they'd learned from that lesson. And I thought that, you know, that's what I tried to do pretty much lesson after lesson every single time, uh, just varying the topic, but always trying to get them to do, make music, do something very active and, and send them on their way. And in terms of uh, mentors and real sort of guidance, yeah. who influenced your, your, your teaching? I think that I learned a lot by doing the, the master's degree because I didn't do a teaching qualification. I mean, it's been, it's been a strange career. Um, I watched colleagues. Um, I employed people who I then became very influenced by. At one point, I, as a music teacher, I was you know, trying to get 10 things done in the lesson. And I watched this other teacher 
and she was like doing two things and actually I got but they did them really well you know and they came away having learned those two things so I thought that was that was very influential for me but I think yeah the the um the first year of my master's degree, we looked at teaching and learning and, and how learning takes place. And a lot of that stuff really went in. So the Vygotsky and Piaget um, and Leibniz Wenger and the peripheral participation theories. So quite a lot of those, those kind of learning theories I kind of really enjoyed and took to, and then went on to, to do quite a lot of management theory in the second two years of that master's degree. And that was very influential too. Brilliant. And then obviously the, the natural progression is to then lead a department. When, yeah. when did that happen? That happened after, I mean, again, it's like the old career. Um, so I was actually working in two schools, I was working at the King Alfred School and at the Hall School, which is a prep school in Swiss Cottage, as a clarinet and saxophone teacher, but gradually getting invited to come into the classroom to take lessons. And then at the King Alfred School, they had a crisis with their head of department that they kept appointing people who, who didn't stay for more than a year. And I put my hand up and said, look, I'll do it. And they said, yeah, you should, which was lovely. It was a really nice moment. And so at that point, I kind of had to write all my schemes of work throughout all the years that I did very rapidly and, and, and sort of get myself into the classroom and, and, and pretty much taught myself how to be a teacher. But obviously, yeah, talking to colleagues along the way and, and just, just learning on the job as much as anything else. And in terms of, of department, was that mm. a, a standalone role or did you have um, other, other musicians with you? I think being a head of music is, is a great um, learning ground for becoming a head teacher because it was a very big department, by far the biggest in the school, if you include the 11 or 12 instrumental teachers that I had to manage. So I had a, a part-timer working with me in key stage three, four, and five. I was also the head of music for the lower school, which was um, that school, a, a key stage one, a key stage two. So those were the kind of the music teachers I was managing. But as I say, then managing 11 um, peripatetic teachers and peripatetic teachers are actually very difficult to manage because often they are musicians first and teachers second yes. so they kind of roll up you know three hours late going yeah well I had a late night last night you're going you have no idea <laughs> the problems you've caused me so yeah it was a real kind of baptisms by fire thing ahead of music and, and uh, yeah it, it, it uh, prepares you for headship extremely well and and so where did you move so from head of department yeah how did you then progress into the senior leadership and then into headship? Painfully, I think is the first word I would use. <laughs> I mean, you know, after I'd been um, head of music for about six years, I decided um, that I had uh, the, the master's degree and I was in the process of doing MPQH and that I would like to move on to deputy headship. For the next four years, I think it took, um, I applied to well over 90 applications. I had 16 interviews. I was offered two jobs, turned them down. I was turned down internally four times. You'd have thought I'd learned by then. Wow. Um, and then actually a couple of people just said to me, the problem that you're experiencing getting a deputy headship is that you are not a deputy head, you're a head. Uh, one person particularly said to me, I would never employ you as a deputy head. You're far too <laughs> kind of scary, knowledgeable. You know, you, you've got a very, very, very clear what you want to do in education. And so no, absolutely not. Um, and I actually literally got the first headship I applied for. So they were and, right. Yeah. And, and, and how was it taking mm. the main chair in school? Um, you know, there's no doubt about it. It's scary stuff. It's scary stuff. Because particularly, I think, because I've been at the King Alfred School for such a long time. Sure. 
I think probably from the age of 28 until 45. So, you know, there's a long, long, long time to be embedded, particularly in a school that was had its own particular ethos. Uh, King Alfred is very funky. It's, um, they call the teachers by the, by the Christian names and no uniform and all that sort of thing. And then going back into a much more conventional school, which is what it was, it was called Dagford House School in Nottingham. Unfortunately, it's closed now. But um, it was scary, but also very, very exciting. So one of the things that happened um, was that the behavior was very, very poor in that school. And after I'd been there about 10 days, I had a, um, a knock on the door from the contractors who were working next door on a, on a building site. And they were very polite. And he, he came in and said, look, you know, I don't want to make a fuss about this, but perhaps you could ask your children not to throw bricks at my contractors. <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh my goodness me, what on earth is going on? Um, you know, so I, we'd also had an incident before I joined. I joined in January. And I heard that the Christmas tree that they put up in the foyer, um, all, the, all the baubles had been smashed by the children. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, that's, that's quite a gesture from year 10 children to kind of, you know, just smash things like that. So I thought this is a deeply, deeply unhappy school. Mm. Um, and indeed, the teachers were saying to me, well, we're okay in the classroom, but on the corridor, we're really hanging on by our fingernails in terms of discipline. So it was a very dramatic moment. And because I'd come from a, a liberal school as a teacher, but also actually a very liberal school as a boy, I was at Winchester, which is a very liberal school. So I called everybody together and I said, um, so things, things are not going very well, kids. Um, you know, we're kind of beginning to lose sense of, of, of propriety and dignity at this school. Yeah. I think we need to sort of do something quite dramatic. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, just stop having detentions. And there's this sort of, you know, penny drop, then a gasp and sort of, you know, just people turning to each other. Is this guy for real? You know, he's been here two weeks and wow. he's decided to do something very, very dramatic. So yeah, so we don't see the point of detention. It's not working. Um, all we ever do is punish you. Um, so what we need to do is to kind of build a bit of trust between you and us and try and break down that language and just... So would you mind behaving yourselves now? And then that would be great. And they kind of went, yeah, okay. I had then had to persuade the team, you know, but it did, I mean, they really did. They kind of came with that journey very, very easily. Um, and then the teachers, there was a moment when one of the science teachers said, well, I just don't understand, you know, we have no leverage left, blah, blah, blah. And then the head of English just said, well, but Steve, he said, I'm, I'm so fed up with taking your detentions. All you ever do is fail to um, manage the behavior in your classroom and put them in a detention on Friday afternoon. And I'm the one who has to take that detention. Sure. So, you know, I was saying to the teachers, no, it's down to you. You've got to control the children. And you've got to do that through pace and through compassion. And so, you know, go out there and make that happen. I didn't tell the governors until after it was a success. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think if I told them, they would, they'd have gone, what? Don't do that. <laughs> so, and what other, what other successes did you have while you were at Dagfa? Um, I just had to kind of unravel an extremely uh, authoritarian um, headship that had been before me. So it was having to reskill people. So literally, I, I mean, one thing I did was to um, try to sort of deploy money sensibly. So I gave the person who, who decided to take on all the displays in the junior school, and I gave her sort of 300 pounds to do that. And after um, a couple of terms, I said, so I see you haven't spent any of your money. And she said, well, but it's not mine. I said, well, it is yours. And she said, but I thought, I, you know, you would spend it. I'm like, no, no, I gave you some money. Go and spend it, you know. So that, those were the sort of things I was doing. and just constantly trying to liberate and lift the lid off the school so that it could breathe as much as anything else. And what advice would you give to any um, aspiring deputy that's looking to take their first headship? I think that um, 
And that's something I, I kind of know a lot about because I've been running with a woman called Jill Berry in the independent sector. I've been running a course for about seven or eight years now for aspirant, new and aspirant heads in the independent sector. And people can look that up. It's called uh, learn, uh, leading an independent school.co.uk. So that's something that, that Jill and I, we work with about 60 people a year on precisely that. So I would say um, the first thing to say is that headship is a very different job. I mean, you know, I wasn't a deputy, so I, I don't know from first hand, but the deputy head is about the status quo, it's about uh, organising, it's about making sure that the school runs smoothly, that you understand what the policy is, and then you make sure that you stamp that policy onto the school and make sure that those policies are running. Whereas headship is all about leadership, it's about changing policies, it's about questioning um, whether we could do things better all the time. And also, I think, looking at every problem from a strategic and structural point of view. So if somebody makes a mistake, it may be that the deputy head is the one who sort of says, excuse me, um, you know, that went wrong, you know, what are you doing? Why you know, are you not concentrating, blah, 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 to a teacher and sort of holds them to account? Which I think the head is going, so structurally, is there something wrong with this? Is that person overworked? Is that why these things are happening? And quite often you think, no, there is no structural issue here. It was just human error. But I'm a great believer in no blame. I think, you know, people beat themselves up quite enough. There's no need for you to, to be going, I'm disappointed with you. Um, because that doesn't really work. It just makes them feel frightened of you and anxious. So, yeah. So, so again, my style is very liberal. Um, deputy headship. Yeah, so lots of whole school experience and be ambitious. Keep your eyes up on the horizon in terms of uh, the wider picture. If you're looking for a school, look at the community that it's in. Um, I was always given the good tip, you know, if you, if you are given an interview when you take a taxi or something, you know, ask, ask local people what they know about the school. Do your search. I think that's absolutely critical. So go to the school knowing absolutely everything there is to possibly know about that school, and that will impress them. And also give you a sense of whether you want to work there or not, because not every school is right for every deputy head, that's for sure. So who's been your biggest influence as a head teacher? Um, I think my father, probably. He wasn't a teacher, but he was a... Um, he was an industrialist, he ran a, a steel company up in Sheffield. And he was, he, his style was always not to, not to hold people to account. You know, he was just like, okay, all right, that's uh, really, you know. And that was his style as, as a dad. And I think that's what I've always done. And I think that has liberated people to do what, what, they, uh, what they can and what, you know, get the best out of people is to be gentle and compassionate with them. I think he was a, a huge influence on me in that sense. And to be honest, I, you know, some, it feels a bit kind of arrogant and churlish, but I learned a lot by working under head teachers who I weren't terribly good. You know? yeah. So you, you sort of look above and you think, oh, I wouldn't do it like that. It's often the way, isn't it? If it you, is. if when, within any employment, yeah. uh, if you see good practice, you, you, you're likely to, to mimic and to replicate. And likewise, yeah. if you see somebody real, really make a hash of something, you're less yeah. likely to, uh, yeah. to, to replicate that as well. So, and in terms of um, your, your biggest challenges within your headship currently, mm. what, what are those now? Currently, I think um, the school has, has grown quite a lot. So when I got here, it was about 350, then it went down to 300. Okay. It's now at 390. And so the, the, the challenge is sort of keeping that small, intimate school feel going, um, keeping on top of all the projects that we want to do. So I think this term particularly, you know, a lot of people around me saying, gosh, we are, you know, noticeably more busy. And that therefore means that you're dropping balls here and dropping balls there. Um, we've just decided to become, you know, sort of genuinely sustainable school and actually the amount of work coming across my desk is, is considerable on that and it's really quite hard to keep, keep track of that. 
So it's trying to keep all the balls in the air, I think, always, you know, keeping those kind of long-term strategic goals going, but also, you know, talking to little Oscar, who's being a pain in the playground away, you know. <laughs> and that's, but that's one of the joys of headship, but, it, but it's very challenging in terms of, of keeping all those things running, you know, concurrently. Yeah. Sure. sure. Mm. Uh, and in terms of um, education, um, yeah. what's one thing that you would change if you, if you could? I think we've, the education is just possibly emerging from an absolutely hideous period of, of neoliberalism where everything is measured and it's all about the data. In the state sector, it still is, I believe, you know, hugely data-driven. I think, yeah. that, although Ofsted are a lot more, you know, um, warm and fuzzy, but they still it's still about, you know, well, if the results are bad, the results are bad, you know. And I think, well, that's a real shame because behind every set of results, is, there are some human stories, and you need to know those human stories. So I think that what I would change about education is is to remove some of the testing. A lot of countries don't test anybody really seriously until they're sixteen or even eighteen, for that matter. So I think putting pressure on my wife, oh, I've disappeared a bit, haven't I? So, um, my wife works in, in, in a state primary school and um, you know, the pressure that she's under to get those results and looking at this child, looking at that child, you know, pressure, pressure. You know, can you think, well, you wouldn't, if you start again, you wouldn't start from here. You wouldn't say like, here's a bunch of eight-year-olds. So what we've got to do is measure where they are and measure them again in six months and then again and then again and then get really worried about that and then blame the teacher because they haven't learned to read. You know, you, you say something to an eight-year-old one day and they've got it completely. The next day, they, they, they don't remember what, what that they were in school. I mean, you know, it, it comes and goes. Learning is not a curve, not a straight line. I mean, it's a, it's a bumpy curve. And I think if we could really embrace that in education, I think we would all be a lot happier. Fantastic. Agreed completely. Mm, and, yeah. uh, and like you say, um, there's always a story behind every child, yeah. isn't there? Like yeah. you say, we're all, we're all you yeah. know, learning as, as we go. Um, yeah. Uh, and in terms of um, current initiatives within school, yep. um, do you have any any particular favourites or, or things that are working specifically well? I've mentioned sustainability. That's just get, getting off the ground. The other thing that I have been doing um, successfully at the school is a thing called Girls on Board. And then I want to tell you what I'm doing now for boys, which is the new initiative. So Girls on Board is a, a thing that I invented here um, about seven or eight years ago. And it basically is a different way of... Um, supporting girls when their friendships go wrong. So I think that the, the hardest thing for girls and supporting girls is when those friendships go wrong, they get very, very upset and they can really struggle to get back into a kind of a, you know, a happy state again. And I think what, the reason that it goes, um, the reason that adults don't support them effectively is because when a girl is upset, she starts telling her story and teachers start to write things down on the assumption that because she's upset, somebody must have upset her, somebody must have been doing something wrong yeah. to upset her. But actually, that is rarely the case. Sometimes it is the case, sometimes you know, bullying is taking place. But actually, a lot of the time, it's, it's just turbulence in the friendship groups. You know, they're all really worried about their friendships, they're anxious about those friendships, and things have happened. And that girl has chosen to come and talk to you about why she's upset. So instead, what we do um, within the Girls on Board School is um, we listen to that story, uh, we check that she's not being bullied. It may be that just listening is enough and just kind of, you know, okay, how are you feeling now? Yeah, I feel, got it off my chest and go back out to the corridor. Sure. Or if not, we'll call it Girls on Board Session. A Girls on Board Session is really just a, an empathy raising moment where we say, look, all girls have this anxiety. Every girl must have a friend. So. Let's just look at this, the things that happen in the school day. So you're walking down the corridor, uh, three, three side by side, and you have to go single file. Who's going to go to the front? Who's going to go in the middle? And of course, the girls go, oh my God, this is a real problem. You turn to the boys and they're kind of going, 
Sorry, what's the question? <laughs> Seriously, this is an issue? Where are you going? Through? Wow, that's amazing. For the girls, it's like, we could talk about this for half an hour. And we do, we analyze it. So why would you go at the front? I'd go here because that, why would you go in the middle? And they've all got reasons. Even down to as, as, as young as seven years old, they can tell you why they would go at the front, middle or back. So at the end of that, you would have effectively kind of raised that empathy. So they're looking across the group thinking, you know, she's unhappy. Someone's got to sort this out. She's going to have to join a friendship group. So we then have empowered them basically to go and sort it out for themselves and the growing ups stay out of it. Now that's been very successful here. I was given permission by my governors um, to, about two and a half years ago to, to commercialize, to monetize that. So I've, as a head teacher, I go out to other schools and I invite people to join me in those schools and I host training sessions. We've got 110 schools across the country Fantastic. doing Girls On Board. So if you want to do that, girlsonboard.co.uk. Thank you. Um, so, Brilliant. Yeah, no, no. And, yeah. and that covers, so you cover the entire UK where that's concerned, not just Absolutely. locally? Yeah, yeah. No, no, the whole UK, yeah. Going up to Scotland next summer. I'm just thinking from a, from a, I mean, I'm a dad uh, yeah. and I have two girls sure. and I can a hundred percent appreciate everything that you've turned around and said. Yeah. And yeah. I also compare that to my friends who've got boys yeah. and they are so different in yeah. like you say, the way in which yeah. they take on board the emotional state yeah. um, and the worry and the anxiety, which is, is really significantly heightened nowadays. It's, yeah, it's almost yeah. like yeah. every everybody's got, you know, a huge problem um, that they sort of face and, and are trying to deal with. Mm. So it sounds like a, a terrific mm. um, initiative. It is a, it's very powerful and we've won a couple of prizes for that. So that, that's going very well. But of course, along the way, obviously people keep saying to me, so what are you doing with boys? And I do have finally an answer to that. I mean, it's taken a very, very long time to kind of work out what I want to say about boys. So the first thing I'd say is that friendship isn't the issue for boys. The most intractable or difficult problem is engagement, is motivation, is disappearing down the wormhole of grunty, moody, depressed, you know, I don't care about anything, and blah, blah, blah. So basically what I've done in a similar way is kind of codify that. Um, and so the first of all, the codification would be um, it's about, it's not about isolation, for girls it's about isolation, it's about avoiding isolation, for boys I think it's about avoiding humiliation, yeah. it's about retaining dignity and that will drive them to behave in ways that they're not always entirely proud of in order to avoid humiliation, I like to push the humiliation onto other people. Then I think you're looking at emotional literacy generally of understanding that you're not annoyed, you're, you're furious, you're really angry. What do you get angry about? Well, actually, boys all get angry about the same things. They get angry with siblings, with parents who patronise them, teachers who are boring, football full stop, you know, um, gaming that goes wrong. And, and again, you're kind of raising the empathy in the room there well, by having those kind of conversations, although that doesn't necessarily change the way they relate to each other. So what I'm trying to do now is to create a new kind of ethical and moral framework around the way they relate to each other. And where I've been going wrong in the past is doing that too late. So I'm trying to kind of go, oh look, all, every, all the boys in year nine are hideous and they, they're mean to each other and they're miserable. But it's too late, I've, I've missed the boat. They have established the culture with which they will address each other, particularly when it comes to banter and things like that. Sure. So what I'm doing now is working with year seven, where actually they understand what I'm saying, but they haven't yet become the grunty horribles. So I'm literally working with year seven this week and asking them to tell me about their older brothers, boys and girls, and they kind of say, oh yeah, you know, he's really moody and he's really mean to me. And, and, and so I'm just, um, similar to Girls on Board, I liked that teaching of just getting people to reflect. So it's not didactic, it's just like, 
I, I use the phrase a lot, so isn't it true to say, you know, what do you think? Have you, have you experienced that? So that they're digging around in their own experience and putting and making connections, I think, between things that they have experienced. So that I'm hoping that by doing that and looking at banter, looking at sensitivity to banter, looking at what's acceptable, what isn't, you know, perhaps being a little bit more um, deliberate when it comes to things like sexualized language, um, and sort of saying, actually, I really disapprove of that. I just don't think we should do that. You know, yeah. that's not dignified. So there is a kind of a moral overlay, of course there is. But there's a lot of just getting them to reflect on the fact that if they allow their banter to become very harsh, it has a ratchet effect. It's very difficult to come back from the humour that was gentle and no longer is gentle. Yeah. And at the heart of that then, and I think I've pretty much concluded my, my thoughts on this, is, is masculinity. So I'm hanging it all on the kind of, what is gentle masculinity? What is sour masculinity? There's a great book out at the moment called Boys Don't Try. They use the words tender and non-tender. I've kind of converted that for myself. And we start those lessons throughout the school, actually, I'm doing at the moment, just saying, so what is gentle and what is sour? You know, it's harsh, it's kind, it's respectful, it's considerate, or it's, it's tough and it's over-competitive, it's arrogant, it's selfish, it's rude. And just, yeah, let's just reflect on those things. And what kind of boy, what kind of man do you want to be? And then the boys are kind of go, oh, we're all these things. We're, we're fine, we're really sweet and lovely. And then the girls kind of go, yeah, no, you're not. And that's really, really useful. To having the girls there in the room, it's like, yeah, you, no, absolutely not. So I guess, you know, it's early days for this, but I'm hoping that that will have an effect looking at, as I say, the, the, the way in which boys relate to each other. Sounds fantastic. Mm, really Sounds interesting. Fantastic. Yeah. It'd be good to, um, if we can, yeah. um, perhaps have uh, a follow-up, you know, around about um, end of end of term or, or end of yeah. year, whichever whichever you see fit. Well, I think um, in terms of masculinity, probably end of year, because I think it's going to take time to kind of embed that and have several lessons. I've got um, one of my teachers is doing NPQSL and she's going to do it on masculinity. So she's oh, going to take some data and, and see if we can you know, prove, prove a point. I think what we'll do is probably take, well, what I'm, I'm recommending for her to do is to take maybe 10 boys, have a look at attitudes towards, say, homework and see if we can change the attitudes towards homework. Sure, you know, sure. Makes sense. Yeah, it's a good thing sense. to work, not a bad thing. You know, it's cool to work, not uncool. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it mm. is interesting because I, I seem to be given the impression um, within my um, sort of peer group uh, that nowadays being clever and, and being a bit of a school geek is actually seen as cool, yeah. um, which yeah. when I was at school, it, it was completely the opposite. Yeah. You know, the, it, it was a complete polar part. So, mm-hmm. um, again, quite interesting where homework yeah. and, and things like that are concerned. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're right. Ge- geekiness has become cool, isn't it? In a way, that, you know, yeah, which is a great thing. Yeah, yeah definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, it, there are so many, there are so many niches now. Yeah. Um, and children are exposed to such a vast variety of um, influence. And it mm. really is an influence. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, we, I, 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 I probably would say that with my um, upbringing and my education, it was very much a, a meat and two veg. It was yeah. this way or that way. You're either clever yeah. or you were yeah. sporty. Yeah. Um, th- there was nothing really in between. And yet now, mm. um, you know, every, every child is, is so unique and yeah. Yeah. it's good, but mm. it's, it's incredibly difficult to cater for. 
yeah, um, sure. Obviously, yeah. from from within within a school. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, fantastic, excellent. Yeah. So, in terms of um, uh, moving forward, then what? Just a, a couple of, of other random questions. But what what are you currently reading at the moment? What what book are you? I'm on? reading a book called The Interestings. Um, it's an American book. My daughter gave it to me. She's very good at finding new authors for me. I can't remember the name of the author, but it's a lovely book of. Of, of, of life in America and growing up and it's I love it yeah it's great and what's your favorite interview question <laughs> I like talking about girls on board <laughs> there's no doubt about that and in terms of if you weren't a teacher where yeah. where would you be what would you be doing you know I have I have another life which is in music um, so I, I play saxophone and I'd love to do more of that be you know able to compose more and play more of that that's always been you know something I'll probably do when I step away from Hitchard do more of that um, but I hope also to have the chance to kind of work further in education when, when I eventually step away from Hitchard as well and sort of consultancy and so on yeah brilliant brilliant mm. and and favorite holiday destination I, I like home I'm a staycation guy I really am, yeah. Excellent. I find going away very stressful. <laughs> and in terms of, of apps, because obviously yeah. we, we live in an app culture now, yeah. what's your favourite work app? Well, I would say that um, Twitter, I mean, you know, is that an app? I don't know. I mean, I'd spend yeah. a lot of time on Twitter, and I think for Girls and Board it's been very, very useful. Um, so I do enjoy t- time on Twitter. Is that, that something that you have within school specifically? Um, not so much. I mean, the school has Twitter accounts and so on, as everybody does. We, we tend to use Facebook a lot more than Twitter. But Girls on Board on Twitter has been very successful because there are an awful lot of teachers on Twitter who are doing their own thing. So there's yeah. a fantastic English educators um, community there that's very, very powerful. So I think that's been really, really good. Yeah, absolutely. And what about your favourite app in general? Yeah, you caught me out there. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, the, the, the app world has sort of changed in a way, hasn't it? Because everything is driven through apps. So, you know, so if I want to watch TV, if I want to watch you know, Amazon Prime, it's through an app and emails through an app, everything's through an app. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I've got some great music ones there, I must admit. There's, some, there's ones that you can buy as a saxophone player where um, it gives you the music and then it plays a great accompaniment and then it turns the page over for you. But there's one called iReal where you can uh, program in the chord sequence and then you can also download thousands and thousands of songs and you can play it in any key at any tempo in any style they're amazing those ones in terms of being able to to, to be at home and practice and have something um, interesting to play rather than just playing c major all the time yeah sounds good i will that gets my point and who would you say has been the biggest influence in, in terms of your life overall yeah uh difficult one my wife, I think, probably has influenced me a lot. My children have influenced me a lot. They're, they're not, my children have never been shy to kind of go, yeah, yeah, but no, no, you're wrong. You know, you've got all this wisdom, but I just think you're wrong. And I love that. I love that kind of relationship I have with all three of them, actually, that they are more than happy to correct me. But they do it very, very gently. And so I think I've learned um, to sort of, you know, not be arrogant. I think my, my dad sometimes is like, well, yes, Andrew, but you, you know, you need to understand this, and you need to understand, I'm going, mm, okay. But my, you know, and I've learned not to, to do that with my children because they just sort of up and down things. So, you know, I'll teach you now. It is the interesting, like you say, <laughs> that the respectfulness, that uh, the difference in respectfulness that you have from when a parent will give you 
uh, a negative or yeah. a, a suggestion compared yeah. to when when your children do definitely yeah yeah, um, yeah. yeah I, I can fully relate to, to that having having two girls as well it's yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's but very they're very gentle with it they're very gentle I'm, I'm writing the girls on board book now and I did a, a 40,000 word first draft and I showed it to Holly who's 23 and she was you know she was like yeah mm, doesn't work at all I don't think <laughs> But bless her, she kind of spent the next four days going through every single sentence with me, trying to work out where it was going wrong. And, and we, you know, we labelled every paragraph and then restructured the book from, from the ground up. So she was prepared to put the legwork in to kind of support me. So that was brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So thank you ever so much for, for um, your time, um, yeah, being pleasure. a part on, on this webinar. Um, what's um, the best or, or where are the best places for people to find you? On Twitter, on, I call, I'm called Girls On Board UK. Um, and Thoughtpool School, I've got a blog on thoughtpoolschool.co.uk um, uh, again, and those are probably the two best places to find me. Yeah. And what was the, um, the head teacher? Yeah, that's a good one actually. Um, it's called Leading an Independent School, which is all one word, .co.uk. And we, uh, Jill and I run that uh, for four weeks into half term every half term, and we used to take on around 25 people. And yeah, we've had uh, probably 500 people go through that over the years, of whom over 100 are now in post. Brilliant. So if you're remotely interested in independent education becoming head, I strongly suggest you do that. It's quite well known, as you can imagine, as, as a course. And I think if you put that on your CV, people are recognising that you've, you've gone through that quality mark. Excellent. Well, what I'll do, um, I'll add the links um, onto here and That's also in the, uh, in the reel below. Yeah. Um, so if anybody wants to get in touch with you, they can. Yeah. Um, and thank you ever so much for your time. My great pleasure. Thank you. All the best. Brilliant. Take care. Okay. Cheers then. Bye-bye. <laughs>